Hi, everybody. Welcome to Ancient Heroes. My name is Patrick Garvey, and today I am with Adrian Mayor, a historian of ancient science and warfare and a classical folklorist. She's a research scholar in the classics department at Sanford University and the author of multiple influential and award-winning books, including The First Fossil Hunters, Gods and Robots, The Amazons, and The Poison King. And her work has been featured on NPR, BBC, The New York Times, National Geographic, and many other popular media outlets. It's so good to have you on, Adrian. Welcome to the show. Thank um, you. The fir- the first question I have for you, when I was reading your bio, this term classical folklorist, can you tell us a little bit about what that means and how you got into that specific field? Um, well, what I do is I search for kernels or uh, little uh, nubs of historical or scientific reality that's embedded in ancient folklore legends and myths and oral traditions um it, this sort of this approach to mythology uh assumes that uh stories about nature that have been told over generations by pre-scientific or in this case pre-darwinian people uh they really have some per, uh, perceptive insights and knowledge real knowledge based on observation that are embedded in those in those oral traditions and myths. So it's part of a new emerging discipline called geomythology, uh, legends about the earth. So um, that's basically what I do. Wow. Well, when I was looking at books that were coming out this year and whatnot, I came across the first fossil hunters and I believe it's being republished this year and correct me if I'm wrong by Princeton university press, but it actually originally came out in 2000. Is that right? That's that's correct, but it's gone through several editions now with uh, revisions and uh, new cover and uh, mm-hmm. corrections of any errors in there. So um, it's really fun that it's coming out. I'm still uh, always asked to talk about that. It's um, it's just perennially interesting. People just uh, find it really fascinating that. In antiquity, people uh, actually thought about, observed, and tried to rationally explain giant fossil bones that they found in their land. Well, I was looking through your biography and publications and whatnot, and I have to say, I think this is one of the most difficult interviews I've had to do because there's about (laughs) 10 different subjects that sound really cool and really fascinating that I haven't heard many other scholars talking much about. And so I was sort of like, where do I start? I could do five different episodes or something on all of this. But so it it made sense. It seems like the first Fossil Hunters was your first big um, book. And so, yeah, can you tell us a little bit about um, the premise is the idea that um, the ancient Greeks and Romans were discovering prehistoric fossils and trying to make sense of that? Yes, uh, they were not only discovering them, but um, trying to interpret them, trying to explain them. So I know when you think of classical Greece or Rome, uh, uh, you usually think of gods and heroes and giants and fabulous creatures and, um, you know, temples and uh, things like that. But um, the the huge fossil bones of mastodons and mammoths, extinct uh, creatures from going back to the Miocene, like 35 
million years ago uh, and up through the uh, Pleistocene, which ended about 10,000 years ago. Those huge fossil bones aren't likely to appear in anyone's mental picture of ancient Greece, but for the ancient Greeks themselves, the the vestiges of these mysterious giant creatures of the remote past are very much a part of their natural landscape. They they observe them constantly because the Mediterranean is a really active seismic zone, and so mm. the the fossils of um, megafauna, giant creatures like mammals like. Uh, uh, mastodons, giant rhinoceroses, giant giraffes, uh, um, mammoths. Um, all these bones were buried in what became Greece uh, because before the Mediterranean, that was a huge landmass that connected Europe, Africa, and Asia. And uh, the Mediterranean Sea broke it up and um, the bones are still there and they constantly erode out when there's an earthquake or a big storm or flood. People in antiquity came across these unfamiliar bones uh, that were just bigger than anything they knew. Uh, you have to think in antiquity, in the time of Homer, no one had ever seen an elephant. They hadn't even heard of an elephant until mm. Alexander the Great went to India and brought them back in the fourth century. But way back in the Bronze Age, they're finding these gigantic bones and they don't know what they are. And humans have a tendency, we have a tendency to anthropomorphize bones that, that we find. I mean, the FBI constantly gets called in to check out bones that someone has found and they turn out to be animal bones. But mammal bones, we're all mammals, right? So mastodon and mammoth bones, the thigh bones and the shoulder blades, they look like human bones, but gigantic. Mm. They're like three times the size of our bones. So it was natural for the Greeks to assume that these belong to heroes from the golden age of myth, right? In, in antiquity, Greeks thought that uh, the great heroes like Achilles and Ajax and Odysseus, that they were all three times the size of puny you know, men and women of, of the present day. And they had proof because they looked at the at these uh, like a femur, a thigh bone of a of a mastodon or a mammoth. That is almost exactly three times the size of a of a human uh, thigh bone or shoulder blade. So um, it, it was logical that they thought these bones belonged to their heroes from antiquity. Did they also? Um, is this also where some of the ideas of? Uh, mythological creatures like centaurs or griffins or things like that also arose where they couldn't, you know, maybe some of the bones weren't as familiar or they couldn't really map onto a human like body. So how did, how did it impact other kinds of myths they had about these sort of creatures? Well, as I mentioned, uh, uh, it's a, it's an earthquake prone zone, this whole Mediterranean area. So the bones of these extinct uh, gigantic creatures are all jumbled up. They're not articulated. So they would just find the strongest, most durable bones, like a, a thigh bone or a part of a vertebra or uh, or a shoulder blade. Those are the most durable bones. So they didn't see the whole animal. Mm. So 
when it looked human, they thought of it as a, a giant hero from antiquity. But if if it looked really unfamiliar and bizarre, uh, they imagined that these were sea monsters or other monsters or um, creatures from mythology. Um, I think that uh, the story of the griffin is interesting because that's not a mythological creature. It doesn't appear in any myths from ancient Greece. And pe- people thought that griffins were some a sort of a giant monster creature that you would see if you traveled very far east to Central Asia. They thought mm-hmm. that these creatures defended the gold deposits that the nomads of Scythia uh prospected for out along the Silk Road. No one had ever seen a live griffin, but they described it, you know, as sort of like a um, a game of uh, uh, gossip where, the, where the, um, the story comes from Central Asia, but it goes through so many translations. I mean, Herodotus, the ancient historian from the fifth century BC, is the one who tells us about the griffin of Central Asia. And he says he heard it um, through seven different translations of the word and the description. And the griffin was described as a creature with a body like a wolf or a lion with four legs, but its head was like a, a raptor's head with a, a big hooked beak. Uh, so, I mean, it occurred to me, I, can you think of any living animal that has a beak and four legs? <laughs> The only thing I could come up with was is a turtle. <laughs> they have sort of a beak and, and four legs, right? But that doesn't fit the description of the griffin that we heard. So um, since I lived in Montana uh, for a long time, I was really aware of dinosaur fossils. And to me, mm. something with four legs and a beak that lays eggs on the ground and... Um, uh, lives in a sort of desert area that made me think that maybe they were observing fossils of dinosaurs in in yeah. Central Asia, uh, and and then this made up a story. Uh, maybe the Scythian nomads who were prospecting for gold made up that story about the griffins to keep people out of their territory, keep them away from the gold. Um, anyway, they they could show off the the fossils of dinosaurs in Central Asia. There aren't any dinosaur fossils in the Mediterranean, but the story could travel across those trade routes back to Greece. And I think that's what happened with the griffin. So I talked to paleontologists in Central Asia and they said, oh, there are beaked dinosaur fossils uh, that are fully articulated. These are the most exquisitely preserved dinosaur fossils in the world. They're, they're preserved fully uh, articulated and and they're often in a standing position and they start eroding out of uh, red sandstone. And there'll be really an eerie sight if, as you're walking along the uh, along the silk route uh, looking for, for gold nuggets that erode down from the mountains. So people would see these and make up a story about them, obviously. And I think the story came all the way back to Greece. Uh, no way to prove it. But it's uh, a lot of circumstantial evidence there that that makes me speculate that the griffin might have been influenced by observations of beaked dinosaur fossils. Do we have any, is there any textual accounts of the ancient Greeks finding the bones or, or what they did with the bones? Um, Absolutely. Or- Yeah, 
that's what, um, as you say, not many scholars uh, studied this particular topic. And I started my research before the internet. So I just had to read through all of the Loeb volumes, the um, the uh, green and red uh, texts from Harvard University Press that have the, uh, the ancient texts from almost all Greek and Roman, Greek and Latin authors on one side and the translation on the other side. And I, the, of course, uh, fossils are not indexed. So I just read through them looking for um, accounts of discoveries of unfamiliar bones or remarkable bones or bones of uh, enormous size or strange shape. And I collected about a hundred ancient accounts from more than 30 Greek and Latin authors from the fifth century BC up through the Roman Empire up to the time of um, uh, St. Augustine. So that's like a thousand year period. And um, their writings describe the excitement and the speculation among ordinary people that occurred whenever these bones of remarkable size or shape were revealed by erosion or earthquakes or storms, or even human activities like plowing a field or digging a well. Um, people got really excited about these. And they did, they actually measured them. And so we have some of the measurements of these um, of these remarkable remains. Uh, and measurements are quite unusual in ancient texts, but we have measurements. Um, one of my favorites is the... Um, measurement of a of a skull a large skull that was found after an earthquake and they measured it by pouring amphoras of water jugs of water into the skull and they told how many amphoras how many cretan amphoras uh, that skull held and i figured out how many liters that held and then i talked to a a paleontologist who told me, well, that was probably a mammoth or a mastodon because of the uh, the size that we have of the of the skull from antiquity. Wow. Well, and so you're really sort of been on an interdisciplinary investigation with all of this. What is what has that been like? And how, you know, it 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 seems like it's a little bit different than what the average historian uh is is doing. Uh, that's absolutely true. I, it's extremely cross-disciplinary, the work that I've, I've done, and I just depend on the generosity and expertise of so many different fields, people working in, in paleontology and uh, archaeology and um, vase painting experts and uh, people who can uh, who speak Greek, ancient Greek and Latin. Uh, they've all been really... Uh, eager to share what they what they have found because they don't have any place to find to to put uh the fact that they found say archaeologists found bones of unusual size they don't know what to say about it but they put it in the appendix of their of their um reports and they were really glad to be able to pass those along to me and i was the one who was looking for patterns uh and uh coincidences in all of this uh information that i that i gathered so it is really interdisciplinary and you asked previously uh what did the greeks do with these fossils uh they didn't just leave them in the ground they often besides measuring them they would then uh take them to the local temple 
And the temples served as museums in antiquity. And so they would dedicate them to the temple as, as the bones of ancient heroes. And sometimes they identified which hero it would be uh, going by the mythology of where that hero had been active. So when they found uh, huge mastodon and mammoth bones around Troy, for example, they would identify them as the bones of Achilles or Ajax or Hector, um, uh, other heroes from from the uh, Trojan War legends. And they put them in the temple so that people could come and marvel at them. Um, So we have had all these um, accounts of discovering remarkable uh, bones and teeth that they would dedicate to temples. And so I would pester archeologists asking whether they ever found any of these uh, fossils that had been collected in antiquity. And I found at least three uh, that had been dedicated in temples. There was one in uh, the German archeologists found a large femur of a probably uh, woolly rhinoceros from the Pleistocene that had been dedicated in the temple to Hera on the island of Samos. And then in the southern um, part of Greece near Nicoria on the Acropolis, archaeologists from Minnesota found uh, another large femur that had been dedicated on the Acropolis of that uh, ancient town um, that came from Megalopolis, uh, a big deposit of fossils from the Pleistocene. So, um, So we even have some evidence that they dedicated these remarkable bones in temples. Wow. Well, and what struck me in thinking about all of this is just that I think with the benefit of today's scientific and historical knowledge and whatnot, we think about some of these beliefs about giants or, you know, mythological creatures like centaurs and griffins and things as sort of silly. But from the perspective of the people living back then, it would have made sense that they had to interpret these things that they were finding. And some of these, um, given the knowledge base that they were operating from, it would have made perfect sense to uh, incorporate this into the the stories about their past and to have it shape the stories to some extent about what the people before them were like, or the animals that once existed or still could exist. It's just, it's much more logical and makes a lot more sense from their perspective. And um, it's definitely changed the, the way that I think we can think about what these ancient people were developing in terms of their folklore. Absolutely. Right. And the, um, the question of which came first, the observation or discovery of remarkable fossils or uh, bones of um, unfamiliar creatures, uh, which came first, the discovery or observation or the story? And we'll, ne- we'll never know. We don't know which came first. We don't know whether there were already stories of giants, which seems likely since we know there are stories of giants around the world. Uh, and stories of giants can come from the storytelling imagination. You don't actually need to have the fossils to come up with that idea that there were giants in the in the remote past. And we have stories about giants from places in the world where there aren't visible fossils of of enormous size. But uh, if 
you already have a story about giants that lived in the mythological past, the glorious days of yore when everything was bigger and better. And then you and then you find huge bones that look just like, you know, your own thigh bone or shoulder blade. Then we know that the, the fossils would um be explained by resorting to the to the mythology about giants. And it's sort of a feedback loop. If you find the big bones, it it confirms the old stories. So um I think uh paleontologists and scientists and even uh classical scholars and historians had sort of, as you say, you you kind of um uh dismissed the the mythology about giants or monsters that lived in the in the remote past as fantasy or purely from the imagination because they're couched in sort of mythological language sort of supernatural language but if you actually read the details and see that they actually measured them and speculated about them they knew that giant creatures or beings did live in their land in the past and they spun stories about them and the details um may be mythological but the the observation they're based on observation so it is sort of a first inkling of the scientific impulse yeah have you thought at all about you know what one debate that's ongoing obviously is is around whether or not some of these stories in homer are um are actually based on any truth or any stories from that time or are merely created much later. And I do wonder how this also relates to the Greeks, let's say the archaic Greeks or classical Greeks finding ruins of previous Mycenaean civilizations and things and developing uh, stories about that similar to how they might find bones uh, and and be developing stories. Have, have you thought at all about the the kind of the fossils of the civilization, so to speak, and the ruins that they may have encountered in some of these um, uh, Greek city-states and whatnot, and and just how they made sense of those things. That's a that's a great question. I I was looking uh, I was looking for the first inklings of the of paleontology, and you're asking about the first inklings of archaeology, mm-hmm. and I in fact I'm I've been gathering information on that. Uh, over the years, and I, um, I think that uh, it would be really interesting—a rich topic to look at—is how how did how did people um, gather knowledge or 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 have insights about evidence from past civilizations that they came across? Uh, I think uh, I think that's a really good question. Uh, I can I can think of um, a good example is the Emperor Augustus, who built the world's first it's called uh, the world's first paleontological museum uh, when he was building his villa on the island of Capri. The workmen who were building his villa came across uh, some remarkably large, unfamiliar bones that they uh, called monster bones and bones of uh, sea and land monsters. And they also, at the same time, in the same area, found ancient uh, projectile points and spear points of a uh, made of stone um, 
obviously from a much earlier civilization. And so Augustus made a museum, not just for the bones of the monsters, but also of the weapons of the ancient heroes. And so he had the first natural history museum that showed uh, archaeological uh, discoveries along with uh, the monsters that he thought they were hunting. So there you have a combination of ancient archaeology and paleontology in the first century BC. Really amazing. So far, we've been talking about the first fossil hunters, dinosaurs, mammoths, and myth in Greek and Roman times. And there's an updated version that's published in 2023 by Princeton University Press. Um, while I have you, I also wanted to, in the spirit of the ancient hero subject, ask you a little bit about the Amazons, if that's okay. Um, oh, sure. you, pub you published a book in 2014 called The Amazons, Lives and Legends of Warrior Women Across the Ancient World. And I know that was a very popular uh, book, and I remember seeing it at the time. Um, what led you to, to want to do a deep dive into the Amazon uh, folklore? Well, I was, um, I was really... Uh really interested in uh, the stories of Amazons and especially all of the ancient vase paintings that we have of Amazons. I mean, you talk about tip of the iceberg. I think we have more than a thousand vase paintings that show Amazons uh, usually in battle against ancient Greeks. And they have these fantastic dashing outfits with wildly patterned leggings and trousers and they're 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 fighting at, on an equal basis with the with the Greek warriors. Um, and I talked to a vase expert at the Getty Museum who told me that we have a thousand surviving vases, and he thinks that's about one percent of what once existed of, uh, of of vase paintings. And so there were there was just a Amazons were wildly popular in ancient art and stories. Uh, of the ancient Greeks. I think every man and woman and boy and girl knew uh, stories about Amazons by heart. And they were surrounded, they're surrounded with pictures of Amazons. So that really uh, captured my attention. Um, uh, why were they so fascinated by this? And was there anything true, historically true, or culturally true about Amazons? And then I started hearing about uh, Archaeologists who were now use now able to use DNA analysis of bones that they were finding in graves uh, that they called warrior graves across the area around the Black Sea and uh, uh, the Caucasus and Eurasia in general. That's the area where the Amazon supposedly came from. And the archaeologists who were using DNA discovered that a lot of the bones that they assumed were male just because they were buried with spears and swords and battle axes and quivers full of arrows, they assumed they were male because of the grave goods, because of the weapons. But then when they did the DNA studies, they found that about a third of the of the um, warrior remains buried with weapons turned out to be female. And that that really piqued my uh, curiosity, so I really began to delve into that. And I, I uh, was able to show, I think, that the, the ancient Greeks had, uh, had heard about Scythian nomads, which was a very egalitarian society, 
based on horseback riding and archery. And uh, both men and women in those societies uh, rode to war together and they hunted on, on an equal basis. And I think that the knowledge that that there was a group like groups like this in antiquity really influenced the idea and the image of Amazons. So it's my understanding or memory that some of these Am Amazonian tribes and whatnot were sort of seen as being on the fringes of the of the Greek world, like they were outside of the normal areas that the Greeks were uh, extremely familiar with. Is that right? That's correct. And uh, in the myths about Amazons, they too were always said that it was always said that their homeland was around the Black Sea. Uh, mm -hmm. And the, the Greeks didn't uh, that was the fringe of the of the known Greek world was the was the area beyond the Black Sea, beyond the Mediterranean and, and around the, and beyond the Black Sea. And the Greeks began exploring uh, by ship. Uh, the Black Sea, I would say, in about oh, uh, 700 BC, and they began to trade and then establish colonies around the around the edges of the Black Sea. And there they met uh, some Scythians. Uh, Scythians were, a, you know, just a diverse uh, groups of tribes, uh, all with their own languages and and uh, histories, but they were all connected by the fact that their their lives were centered on horses and archery. And so they told the Greeks about the tribes of various tribes of Scythians and, and the Greeks were astounded to hear that women rode to rode to war, rode horses, um, dressed exactly the same as the men and were taught even as little girls to ride horses along with the little boys and learn to shoot bows and arrows and wield weapons and everyone could hunt and protect the tribe. This really astounded the Greeks because Greek women normally were kept indoors, um, weaving, taking care of children. They certainly didn't live a rugged outdoor life. Um, they weren't highly active and they certainly weren't equal to the men. So I think that the sort of shocked and uh, awed <laughs> the, the ancient Greeks, and I think it fed into their Amazon stories. Once again, we don't know which came first. You could have a story about women warriors. I mean, after all, the Greeks had uh, two goddesses who were uh, the goddess of war, Athena, and the goddess of hunt, the hunt was Artemis. So they they had uh, the, the concept that women could be mm. warriors and hunters, uh, but they didn't treat their own women that way. Uh, then when they found out about a, a society that did have equal men and women, um, I think that really played a strong role in their visualization of, of Amazons, uh, both in their myths and in their artwork. I've definitely become more interested in the cultures, these ancient cultures around the Black Sea. Like you mentioned, they were connected to the, the Amazon folklore, and they, they also have a special connection to Achilles, um, and it's something I've always been curious about, um, that a lot of the Achilles cults and things were near the Black Sea. Um, and uh, and even, the, even the character of Achilles is sort of connected to the Amazons and the Amazonian queen in, in the Iliad. So um, I don't know if there's any other connection there that's interesting, but I have been drawn to sort of the Black Sea uh, folklore and cultures and things like that. 
That's that's absolutely true. Um, Achilles, of course, is uh, the Greek champion of the Trojan War, and Troy, of course, is just south of the of the of the Black Sea in uh, in Asia Minor. Um, and so, I mean, according to the Greek myth of the Trojan War, uh, Achilles is the great champion who's going to lead the Greeks against the Trojans, and the Trojans call on all their allies in the Iliad. Uh, to to come and help them fight the Greeks. And among the allies that come and help uh, King Priam and Hector of of the Trojans are are a band of Amazons, uh, uh, a band of Amazons led by Queen Penthesilea, uh, who comes from the Black Sea area to help the Trojans fight the Greeks. And... uh, Although the battle with Penthesilea and Achilles is not in the Iliad, uh, their arrival is referred to in the Iliad. And scholars believe that there was a lost epic uh, that told the story of Penthesilea and Achilles. We certainly have lots of vase paintings that show that the Greeks love that story of uh, Penthesilea and Achilles having a hand-to-hand combat uh, on the plains of outside Troy and uh, that they're totally equally matched. And, uh, but of course, since the Greeks are telling the story, the winners always tell the story, um, their great hero Achilles uh, finally overcomes Penthesilea and and kills her. She's the, the foreign enemy, of course, helping the Trojans. But uh, the Greeks like to imagine that just as she's dying, uh, he falls in love with her. So there we have that push-pull about Amazons in, in the Greek mind. They have this amb- ambivalent feeling about these strong, independent female warriors. Uh, they feel both fear and respect for them. So um, that story just really uh, drives that home, I think. Did you, when you were writing this book, were you very laser-focused on the Amazons as understood and portrayed in sort of the ancient Greek world, or or were you also looking at other nearby civilizations or other ancient civilizations and whether or not they had similar stories? I did look at whether they had, whether other um, cultures had similar stories. I mean, the Scythians uh, did not uh, leave any writings themselves. So we, we only know about them from what the Greeks and Romans wrote uh, what the Persians said and what uh, the Egyptians wrote about them and uh, a Chinese chronicles. So uh, we have to sort of depend on the Scythians' neighbors to tell us about their their female warriors. And all of those ancient cultures had stories of their own warriors meeting up with and fighting with, uh, uh, sort of colliding with Scythians, especially female warriors among the Scythians. What's really was interesting to me is that when I compared the stories from ancient Egypt, ancient Persia, Central Asia itself, and the Chinese chronicles, they were all very different than the Greek stories uh, on one particular point. In in the Greek stories, the heroes of Greece, um, Theseus, uh, Bellerophon, um, Achilles and Heracles, they all fight Amazon queens and they utterly defeat them and kill them. And then that's the end of the story. 
Um, but in the other ancient cultures, in those in their stories, they talk about how equally matched their hero was with the Amazon uh, adversary. And they're so equally matched that their uh, combat, single combat, face-to-face combat just comes to a, a stalemate. No one can win because they're so equally matched. They rest uh, and then they start talking and then they become companions. They decide to stop fighting and join forces together. And I just found that I found that very interesting that the, the ancient Greeks had the zero sum game where somebody has to win. And it has to be their hero, of course, who wins against these foreign, uh, formidable, powerful, but foreign women. Whereas um, the ancient Egyptians, the Persians and the Chinese, um, they want to join forces with these women and and go off and fight other enemies together. I found that really amazing. Yeah. Wow. Well, in your in your research, did you find anything to suggest that there were societies that were dominated by women or solely made up of women or something like that? I, I know that that's been part of the legend of the Amazons, but in different ways, it sounds like there is evidence that you had the the strong female warrior and the respected equal female warrior. But was there anything beyond that where it was um, like truly a female dominant society? Um, some of the some of the Greek uh, myths about Amazons suggested that it was an all female society uh, ruled by a queen and that they uh, either had no men in their tribe, or if they did, they uh, oppressed them. Uh, but I couldn't find any evidence of uh, actual tribes like that. Uh, I think that there could have been bands of women who went out hunting or raiding or fighting together, mm. uh, but mm. they they were always uh, within a tribe of both men and women. And it, it, it's a dream of uh, some... Uh, feminist to say that there was uh, that there was a ancient uh, matriarchy that was uh, overcome by the patriarchy. Um, I I I tend to think that there were egalitarian groups in antiquity. Uh, as long as they were nomadic, that made sense. Uh, everyone's a stakeholder. Everyone needs to be able to hunt and defend the tribe. So that makes sense that. Uh, that they were equal uh, and that they taught their children uh, the same skills, hunting and, and warfare. Um, it's, it's when you get agriculture and settled, uh, settled peoples in cities that uh, you can have the luxury of uh, oppressing the women. And so uh, the, the Greeks were patriarchal and so were uh, many of the peoples around the around the Mediterranean because they were settled and agricultural and not nomadic. We're just scratching the surface here on decades of incredible research um, by Adrian Mayer. And I appreciate you coming on, Adrian, and we will definitely um, be diving more into these topics in the future. So I hope we can stay in touch and keep up the great work because it's, it's really fascinating stuff. And this is the kind of awesome historical research that will have a huge popular appeal as I'm sure you're aware of and kind of has the ability to reach 
many, many people that aren't necessarily scholars themselves or have ever taken a major interest. This pulls people into the subject. So um, thank you so much for coming on today. Well, thank you, Patrick. You had great questions and uh, comments. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you to Derek Feischer for composing the music used in this episode. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes or your podcast app. Thanks for listening.